Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, March 22nd, 2022. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, common Washington commentary columnist, AEI scholar, and author of the forthcoming History of the American Conservative Movement, The Right, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Thanks Matt, for having Matt's me. Holding, holding up his I'm holding book, it up. Which you, you can't see, but there it is. He's holding it, it up. Exists. It exists. It's good. I've been reading an advanced physical. copy. It's really good. Oh, wonderful. Ah, there we go. It's good. Excellent. Christine. That's Rose. what I like. That's what I like to hear. Uh, Matt, uh, aside from your uh, labors on this book, you are, of course, our monthly Washington commentary columnist, and you have a piece in the upcoming uh, April issue, which is available for perusal online at commentary.org called Believe Them. Um, And uh, I think it's a very important, uh, very plain spoken statement of purpose uh, that uh, cuts through a lot of the uh, malarkey in politics and in foreign policy punditry, uh, and says basically what? Well, it says that when evil men state their intentions, we should believe them. And we're, we're not used to believing uh, uh, evil men in societies such as ours with the rule of law, violence is uncommon, um, and certainly not state-sanctioned. We have a vibrant civil society. We're wealthy. We live in most. Many of us live in luxury. And so, when someone like Vladimir Putin comes along and spends years talking about the essential unity of the Ukrainian and Russian people, and starts talking about how um, the West constitutes an empire of lies uh, that that he wants to overturn. And when he starts talking about the Nazi regime headed by a Jewish president in Kiev, a lot of us, and myself included, couldn't quite wrap my head around that this man would launch the largest military offensive on the European continent since the end of World War II. And, uh, and so we, we resisted that he might actually do this, despite all the intelligence telling us so. And of course, we had reason to be slightly skeptical of some of the intelligence too, given our recent history in America. But then he did it. And I think the lesson of, the, of what has happened over the last three weeks in Europe is that we should take more seriously the claims of Xi Jinping in China about the unification of Taiwan with the mainland. And we need to take more seriously the claims of the Iranian regime and their uh, apocalyptic and genocidal intentions toward the state of Israel. So this flies in the face of many, many, many decades of sophisticated foreign policy analysis that always says, well, you know, you can't boil down the intentions of a country based on its most incendiary statements. After all, there are competing factions and factors within the governments, even of the most authoritarian, most totalitarian countries, hawks, doves, people who don't want to go to war, people who do. The purpose of diplomacy is to surface the doves and give them some ballast to fight off the intentions of the hawks um, and on and on and on. And this constant, uh, you know, uh, a chorus 
of um, no, no, no. What you see before your eyes is not the world as it is. There is something much more complex. Um, and some of that, I think, goes to the description that you give of, of the West, or let's say of, of, of well-intentioned countries, though, of course, there are many people in the West and in the United States who don't believe that we're a particularly well-intentioned kind of country, which is that we will say things that we don't mean, or we will, you know, for the purposes of keeping up appearances, being kind, not, you know, not upsetting the apple cart, we will, we will say that we, we will not endorse the idea at least until a couple of years ago that, you know, the Turks committed a genocide in Armenia because we all know that it happened, but we're not going to say it because that would just make more trouble uh, that uh, and trouble for the Armenians. It's not helpful. And so we won't do that. Or a lot of, you know, two-faced diplomacy. Um, but the purpose of that is the maintenance of, of good working order and sort of civility, you know, the kind of, it's almost like an adaptation of social codes to international behavior uh, where you will often not be blunt because being blunt is to be rude or to hurt people's feelings and all of that. And here you're saying, this is a real opportunity. They're showing, they're telling us what they want to do and giving us an opportunity by doing so to plan how we are going to combat them or confront them. Right. Or how, how, as you put it in your essay this month, how to reestablish deterrence against them. Look, I think a few things are going on here. One is this kind of cliche of, uh, you know, what I call vulgar realism in foreign policy that, you know, that the internal character of states doesn't matter. All states are basically the same. International politics is just the game of power politics. Uh, you know, um, alliances may change, but interests do not. All of these cliches you hear in international relations studies. And so what what the governments of these regimes say don't, don't really matter because at the end of the day, you know, they're just going to follow what their interest dictates. And this led to a lot of realists on Twitter in the run-up to the invasion of Ukraine saying, no, 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 there's no way Putin is going to do this. It's not in his interest. Well, of course, Putin, Putin is the ultimate arbiter of what his interest is or what his desire is. And people, you know, in my four decades on this planet, I have learned that people often do not behave according to self-interest, right? So that is one illusion. Another illusion is what you allude to, John, which is what Charles Krauthammer called in one of my favorite essays of his, the mirror image fallacy. And the mirror image fallacy is that we are in the West, and I say the West, but I think Stephen Kotkin put it very well recently, where he said the West isn't a place, it's an institutional package. So there are countries in Asia that I belong to the West, such as Japan, such as Taiwan. Um, and in the West, where we have the rule of law, we have civil society, we have pluralism, um, we are used to a certain form of behavior and, and democratic codes of conduct that we then project onto the world. And so, you know, in America, we hardly believe what our politicians say, right? Or we're supposed to take them seriously, not literally, right? Or uh, it's just another, it's more malarkey from Joe Biden. But these are democratic politicians we're talking about, small d, 
they there's a certain cynicism that goes with democracy because at the end of the day we can always throw them out you can't do that in an autocracy and so when the the regimes that are non-democratic state their intentions and often act on them we need to recognize that they are not like us that that even though you know there might be some substrate of human nature that connects us all once you get to the realm of institutions shaping people and especially governments ruling over people, things look very different in autocracies than in democracies. And so this, is, this has been, I think, a real, uh, another illusion that has led people to, to believe, oh, Putin can't really do these things, can he? Well, he, he can and he has, and he, and he might do some of the things that are even more frightening. And so the time to prepare, as you suggest, is now, not later. Uh, let me let me analogize this to something that happened yesterday. So Katanji Brown Jackson had her the first day of her uh, confirmation hearing, and most of it, as always is the case, was taken up with senators blathering, uh, using up you know using up valuable uh, time that could be better left for them with them not expelling carbon dioxide nonsense words. Uh, and, you know, uh, being showy about all of this. But uh, to, toward the end of the day, Katanji Brown-Jackson made her opening statement. And of course, uh, this is where um, we differ from an autocracy, aside from having a Supreme Court that's an independent body and all of that. So if hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue, Katanji Brown-Jackson uh, revealed in her opening statement that she is willing to play the game that is necessary, the social game that is necessary that I was talking about to achieve her aims in our society. She talked about believing in God. She talked about what brought her to this moment. And she said she would be an independent thinker and that she saw the perspectives of all sides and that she wasn't going to be governed by, you know, by ideological predilections. No rational person can believe that she actually means this. She has obviously risen through the ranks because she is an ideologue who knows how to draw, you know, sort of draw between the lines. Uh, you know, she's she she is a person who has views that until about seven minutes ago would have con been considered far too radical uh, for uh, for anyone to be contemplate contemplated as a person on the Supreme Court. Ideas about the injustice of long, uh, long sentences and uh, the, the problems of incarceration and the fact that uh, in the most controversial finding that uh, sex offenders are often given sentences that are that are wildly too harsh, that kind of thing, which and, you know, these things are always arguable, but the general panoply of issues would not have been considered within the mainstream of public opinion 10 years ago if she had been up for you know Barack Obama to choose her for the Supreme Court though he did choose her for the you know for for a district court and then she rose to the appellate court but the point is that she found it necessary to observe the niceties of these hearings as did Elena Kagan before her and all of that to say, no, I'm not this. No, I won't do that here. I believe in the independent. This America is a it's wonderful to hear, actually. Finally, some uh, leftist Democrat talked about the glory of the American constitutional experiment and the, the, the glory of the founders in creating our system. 
all of which was just intended to get her those two Republican, one or two Republican votes to sort of harden and make sure she gets the two Republican votes that will put her over the top. And on the other hand, that is part of our our social ballet where people say things they don't mean in order to, you know, in order to cover cover their bases. And Vladimir Putin does not need to do that. He is not courting some version of conventional opinion or or trying to win over people who don't agree with him. That's not what he does. That's not what people like him do. What they do is say, be afraid of me. Do what I tell you, or I will flatten you. I will take all your money and I will send your I will send your children to prison. Like it's a different set of calculations. And that is the mirror image problem. Like we think he's Katanji Brown Jackson. Sure, he says he wants to level, you know, he wants to level uh Ukraine, but he doesn't really mean it. You know, it's in reverse, right? I mean, I'm, I'm just waiting for the headline uh, to appear somewhere online saying commentary editor likens Katanji Brown Jackson to Vladimir Putin. Yeah, I was good. Yeah, I was going to say that. No, the, quite the I, opposite. Yeah. Can I just <laughs> add, just though, that, yes. that in addition to the mirror image problem, which I think is a good it's, it's a good um, analogy to help people understand this. There's something else that's going on recently with the Biden administration where it's not just that he's assuming that the same motivations and incentives and disincentives function for Putin as they would for us. It's that he thinks that the that Putin wants to join our club. He wants to join the West, right? There's this idea that, and that's a very Cold War mentality, right? It's like, well, the, and it might still be true that the, the people in Russia would rather have a system with a civil society and the rule of law than what they have under autocracy. But this idea that you can negotiate with an autocrat by saying, well, we know you want to join our club, but our table here in the in the cafeteria in high school is really special and you have to wear a certain outfit and you have to say certain things. And and, it, and they are acting as if, you know, Putin's parading around going, do I look genocidal in this? I mean, it's not it, it, the, the, the whole language that he was using in this buildup while troops were massing on the border with Ukraine just struck me as absurd at this point, given what we already know based on his on, on Putin's previous actions, he was willing to do. And I felt like that was it really did seem like absurdist theater to me, the way that Biden was talking about Putin in, in the build up to this recent invasion. OK, I'm so, going to go all IR theory, though, on you <clears throat> to try to defend the, uh, the that would really be international relations. That's that's right, the, the that's internet. the horrible. That's the sure. horrible mistake mistaken field of study that Noah and I both True. engaged in in yeah. college. It's a, a terrible and that I've had to wash from my brain over the. I had an awful taste years. in my mouth from the thing, but I nevertheless learned a couple of things. And, and among them is the idea that I agree that there's this Hobbesian reality that typifies the anarchic international environment. There is no such thing as international law because there is no such thing as an agreed upon constabulary that exists with a monopoly on the use of force understood by all members of the community of nations. And there are a lot of territorial disputes um, between uh, sovereign powers in North Africa and South, South, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East, to say nothing of Europe. France and Italy have territorial disputes. Ireland and the UK have territorial disputes. Turkey and Greece have territorial disputes, one of which is undoubtedly an authoritarian power. And we trap these powers in the package of institutions that co constitute the West, as we understand it. And we provide them with incentives to engage with those institutions and to consent to the agreed upon fiction of international law and international norms, uh, because the incentives are more valuable. The alternative is what we're doing now to Russia, which is unsustainable in the long term to isolate it 
uh, and to cripple its economy and to render it this this particular society, which has a siege mentality baked into its DNA to reinforce the, the value and validity of that siege mentality. So the alternatives to integration in Western institutions are really economic warfare blockades and ultimately um, real engagement, kinetic engagement, which we want to avoid. So we can listen to them and hear what they have to say, but we don't have a whole lot of tools in the toolbox to get them to back off their demands, save as you say, the compelling power of deterrent force or a bunch of carrots in the form of these institutions. There's really nothing else in the tool shed. But he doesn't want the carrots. I mean, that's, I think, ultimately the point that, you know, Matt, you're, I mean. But Putin doesn't want the, the, the right, carrots. Right, so I'm saying, Putin but doesn't did. want the carrots. But Erdogan G- did. Okay, so Putin, you want to, as as Lenin said, you want to, you know, you know, you want to sell them the rope with which they can hang themselves. I mean, it's not that he doesn't want to take the benefit of whatever he can get uh, f- from the West without without any rational form of exchange and that's essentially the story of china over the last 25 to 30 years and why xi has re-communized or whatever you want to call what xi has been doing in in china for the last really the last seven years is saying okay we got we got most of what it is that we could get out of the west by acting nice and uh, we've now bind we've now bound them into our supply to our entire their economy is now entirely bound up with our economy now we're going to stop pretending that we're going to we're going to become more liberal. Uh, we're going to we're going to we're going to kill democracy in Hong Kong. We're going to do whatever we want to do with the Uyghurs and we are going to steal technology and dare them to do something about it. And and that's part of the system. So you 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 you're there. We didn't attempt to weave them in, in, into institutions. We attempted to buy their participation in in western style rule of law and and freedoms on the basis on the idea that prosperity and economic growth were somehow going to magically foster a society-wide or government-wide connection to western ideals and they beat us at i was just sorry to interrupt but they beat us at our own game if you look at it from that perspective because they went into africa and they did exactly that and it's now many african countries which are beholden economically to the infrastructure that's been built for them by china by a lot of the trade relations so and they also infiltrated international institutions and bent them a little bit more to their will the world health organization being the most egregious recent example in the wake of of the pandemic just to to fully articulate what I think is the Milton Friedman view of this, which is on the ropes for sure. But it's the idea that fostering the development of a middle class creates that kind of stability, not because it inculcates Western values in this new middle class, but that middle class becomes an absolutely vital constituency for the regime that it cannot afford to lose. And so that pivots the regime towards protecting and preserving the comforts of this now very valuable middle class. That, of course, again, is 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 uh, I'm not quite sure how that's Milton Friedman, but I mean that is the mirror problem right there. Well, I mean, the mirror see- problem right there is this notion that the middle class has more power than the autocrat in an autocratic system, and it turns out if you're Xi, you can have you can build a 300 million person middle class in China, and then when you want to take all their rights away, you take all their <laughs> you take all their rights away. With the with the stroke of a pen, and then what are they going to do about it? And it turns out, guess what? They they don't do much about it because I, the, because the government has a monopoly on force, among other things. I'm sorry, Abe. 
Well, I think there's another aspect to the mirror problem that that we're leaving out here, and it's not political. It's cultural. Um, it's not just the West and its institutions. It's the it's the modern West and the and the lifestyle and our our the public's general sense of well being and contentedness. Um, sort of live an existence where there are so few disrupt, so few horrors, so so few sort of inconveniences almost at this point that we view sort of a whole range of things that have happened over and over again throughout history, like pandemics, like wars, as unthinkable. And 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 I think that is a and and there's a sort of an assumption that, it's, that there's a that. Well, that's how that's how they must see things as well. Who would want to disrupt this good thing? You know, I've mentioned this before and I don't want to be pretentious, but, you know, a couple of years ago I was reading this, you know, famous The Diaries of the Duke de Saint-Simon, who was part of the court of uh, Louis XIV. And um, what's so striking about it when you when you read this document, which is, you know, endless. I mean, it's I don't know, it's a million words long. And um, and so, you know, you dip in and out of it and all that. But but um, this was a society that uh, when spring came along, they all went off to fight war because that's what they it's like, OK, well, there's the thought spring and now we got to go and, you know, take our troops off and, you know, do something against Italy or, you know, like fight, do something, you know, take land in Germany or something like that. That's what they did. Like th- this was normal life this wasn't war was not a discontinuity particularly in europe in the in the you know in the first millennium of the 20th century it was a normal state of play that that the aristocracy sort of did to keep itself occupied you know they schlepped their guys out and they'd be on the battle whatever you know and then they bring them back in and you know they win or they lose or whatever they try to occupy so maybe they would probably wouldn't even fight but yeah, I mean, the ultimate thing is we look at war, um, and this is an important distinction. We look at war as a as a staggering discontinuity. And for most of human history, war is a relative constant, you know? And to take it back to Putin, I mean, it's a relative constant of his rule. I mean, think about it. He comes in in 2000 and he levels uh, Grozny in, in Chechnya. Uh, then he uses force against uh, Georgia in 2008. He uses force uh, to take Crimea and begin his uh, great uh, zone conflict in eastern Ukraine in 2014. In 2015, he sends his little green men into Syria and uh, closes the skies in Syria. He created a no-fly zone in Syria. Uh, and then uh, now he uses force in 2022 against Ukraine. So it's not, you don't even have to go back in human history. Uh, it, for, for this individual, it, this is, it forces the way of achieving his aims. And so I think for me uh, and for other people who may not have just wrapped their head around the, um, the, the, the impending invasion, in, it, despite all the intelligence, and we have to give President Biden and Secretary of State Blinken some credit here, because they were saying, no, this is going to happen, uh, was just the, 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 the magnitude of what has started, right? The actual invasion of a sovereign nation of 40 million people, the largest country in Europe, not counting Russia in Europe, 
and the leveling of these cities that are, uh, you know, entirely uh, Western. And we were just not used to seeing that. And so it, it does, it, 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 there was a mental barrier there that has now been uh, surpassed. And, uh, and the question now becomes, are we going to apply the lessons to other states? And I do think Xi, Jin, Xi Jinping is, like Putin, a true believer. I mean, this is a guy who grew up, he thinks himself as the new Mao. He has rewritten Chinese history to include him along with Mao. He's, he's diminished the historical stature of Deng Xiaoping, who was the leader of China who famously opened up the Chinese markets and uh, said famously, you know, to get rich is, is glorious, right? Um, he has rejected that legacy, she has in favor of the Maoist legacy. And so we should take that seriously. The same thing with the new president of Iran, Raisi. He is the Ayatollah's chosen leader. And he too is a true believer. And so one, one of the stories that inspired this column and the new issue of commentary was, uh, I was listening to our friend Peter Robinson interview Stephen Kotkin, the great biographer of Stalin, historian of the Soviet Union and of Russia. And, uh, Peter was relating a conversation he had with Kotkin where he said, you know, Stephen, you've probably spent more time in the Soviet archives than any American alive, uh, maybe more than most people alive. What did you learn? And Kotkin told him they really were communists. <laughs> they really believed in this system. And it's just so hard for us to entertain that idea that they really believe this stuff. And that's why I wrote this piece uh, in the new issue is, I, we just need to reinforce that again and again. The, the leaders of these autocratic, and indeed in, in the Russian and Chinese case, like in North Korea, you're becoming, you're, you're surpassing autocracy. You're turning into a totalitarian state. And especially in a totalitarian state, they really believe this. And there are no constraints on the whims of the leader. Abe, um, if we move this to a discussion of the the basis both in the Obama administration and now in the Biden administration for the belief uh, that it is a wise move to strike a nuclear deal with Iran. Um, this is the ultimate believe them, right? I mean, this is the ultimate challenge. Uh, believe them is the ultimate challenge to this idea, which is that somehow <clears throat> uh, through a, a combination of carrots, and there are almost no sticks, but there are a whole lot of carrots uh, with some, you know, some checks and policing, uh, you know, in, in inspections and things like that. Uh, you can you can win Iran over into moderating its nuclear ambitions on the grounds that this is really going to be good for them in the international community. Not only are they going to get a lot of money. <laughs> but, you know, it'll be understood that they're really part of the community of, of nations. Well, and why, does, why does Iran want to be part of the community of nations? It's a well, revolutionary regime. I mean, you know, uh, Barack Obama's approach to Iran typifies this mirror image problem. He had decided that they want what we want, which is just, you know, to be, I'm going to, and an open hand. I'm going to offer them the open hand that they haven't had from the U.S. See, that'll change everything. And I think he wrote Kamenei a letter. 
Uh, he made uh, video entreaties to Ahmadinejad. Um, and it was a complete act of disregard for everything the regime had been saying and doing and working toward its very purpose. The, the, the very purpose of the revolution was, 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 was to, was, was to um, oppose the kind of thing that, that the, the sort of Western liberal thought that, that, that Obama thought was sort of created this cuddly world that, they, that, they, that the regime was interested in being a part of. And, you know, who believes them? Like, it, it, Israel believes Iran. Israel Absolutely. has no difficulty believing that when the president of Iran says Israel will not exist very soon, uh, that they need to take actual actual concrete steps to prevent him from working from from achieving the aim that he has laid out very publicly and very specifically. And what has that meant? It has meant like almost twenty years of sabotage, uh, methods of sabotage. And if you think about it, again in the believe them sense, what Israel has done is made the world safer because it has prevented the proliferation of a nuclear weapon in Iran that would have happened had they not done Stuxnet or, you know, had they not, you know, killed nuclear scientists and done this and done that and blown up plants and all the stuff that we know that they've probably done that we don't have any answer to. But by doing that, they have retarded nuclear proliferation uh, in a way that no deal ever would because they believed that they needed to take seriously the things that the regime was saying and not go, no, no, they don't. It's just rhetoric. It's just, you know, kill kill all the Jews is just rhetoric. Well, some people don't have the luxury and, of including, playing that game. Including the Saudis and the Emiratis, who also believe them. Right. And the the shared the the fact that they believe them and the Isra and the Israelis believe them is is responsible for this this you know alliance. I mean, I will say there there's a way there's a way in which uh, Western diplomats do believe them. Uh, they believe the, the 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 bad actors when they lie, when they say no, we we're just you know this is there's that we we're just we're just looking to, to sort of coexist peacefully and. You know, in this modern age, I mean, Putin and Xi, they they issued this weird rambling joint statement a few months ago that was full of the kind of um, rhetoric that you hear, I think, from everywhere, from sort of uh, the, the, the kind of today, the nationalist right to the kind of um, pro uh, uh, diplomacy uh, kind of, you know, internationalist school of, 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 of relations, which is you know, that, that cooperation among states is the way to go now. We don't need anyone imposing their way on, uh, on us. People believe them when they say things like that. Right. Because, yeah, you pick, you choose your, you, know, you choose your priors. You know, what, 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 what confirms your priors is what you should believe. But, you know, it's a funny thing because then, you know, Xi kills democracy in Hong Kong starts concentration camps and Putin invades other countries. And so uh, those are statements too, that are actually are where you put your money, where your mouth is, you know? So yeah, I'd say the, to... the Russians and the Iranians are good at presenting a very kind of suave, you know, Westernized face. So you have Lavrov and you have, or you had for a while Zarif, right. And th that's exactly the type of figure that, 
um, our diplomatic class wants to believe because they're very smooth talkers and, you know, they've sent their children to Western schools and they're the front for uh, these uh, kleptocracies and these, these autocratic states. Now, it's funny is that as a result of Ukraine, I think um, Lavrov is... Uh, uh, even now, Western diplomats aren't paying any, any attention to him. They're 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 focused on what is actually happening on the ground, at least for now. And I hope that continues that focus. Uh, and of course, and Zarif is gone, right? And with the, with the Chinese, uh, it's interesting because they take actually the very different tack. Their their front men, so to speak, are quite aggressive. <laughs> and very upfront, and and uh, you, if you recall that meeting between um, Blinken and Sullivan and their Chinese counterparts in Alaska last year, where it just devolved into uh, an argument over uh, American crimes and and the sins of the West and how dare you lecture us and we have the rights to all these things we're the new big big kid on the block here, um, and, and it's 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 in a way refreshing because, because they're more upfront about, about their intentions. I just, I, like, I've been thinking about something that Noah said earlier, that it's very hard to isolate. That'll be, that's not sustainable to isolate Russia. I'm actually not so sure about that. I think Russia is on its way to becoming North Korea. We have effectively isolated North Korea now for, you know, uh, 70 years, basically. And, because of the size of the Russian economy and its lack of integration to the global economy, and especially since the invasion, it's become even less integrated, it's essentially cut off. Uh, I, I think it, I think Putin would is almost strengthened by by his isolation. And I think it's more sustainable, say, than China, which would it, one reason why I worry about the fate of Taiwan is that the Chinese integration to the global economy, is a deterrent against us, right? Exactly. We could do these it's, things. Yeah, it's much more Russia. powerful. In some ways, it's much more powerful than the nuclear threat. Yeah, I mean the, the amount mean, of pain. Yeah. Think of the pain that already the the economic warfare uh, we're engaging in with Russia has caused in terms of um, uh, worsening the already ongoing inflation. Um, uh, primarily, that's that's been and, and gas prices in particular. That's been the way the real fallout here. I mean. To, to do the sort of thing we've done against Russia, against China, would have uh, serious economic consequences at home. And that provides the Chinese leverage on us. Yeah, here's why I don't think it's sustainable. Okay, hold on. Term. Before you, I want you to answer, Noah, but, uh, sure. but let, me, let, me just, um, let me just go to our first sponsor today, um, Policy Genius. Um, life insurance can give you peace of mind if something happens to you. Right, your loved ones would have a financial cushion for rent or mortgage payments, loans, education costs, everyday expenses. And having life insurance through your job may not be enough. Most people need up to 10 times more coverage to properly provide for their families. Policy Genius is your one stop shop to find and buy the insurance you need. Head to policygenius.com and answer a few questions in minutes. You can compare personalized quotes from top companies to find your lowest price. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. The team of licensed experts at Policy Genius will help you understand your options and apply for the policy you choose. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies. You can trust them to offer unbiased help for you at every step until you're covered. So head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much 
you could save. And let's talk about our friends at Bambi. Bambi started to provide you with the kind of HR services you need for your small business so that you don't have to suffer over wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and pay a $70,000 a year salary just to have an HR manager at your small business. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. It provides a dedicated HR manager, crafts HR policy, and maintains your compliance all for just $99 a month. Your dedicated HR manager, available by phone, email, or real-time chat, Month to month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. They customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day to day, all for just $99 a month. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time in HR compliance. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E-E.com slash commentary, spelled BAM to the B-E-E.com slash commentary. Noah, please, I was interrupting you on the... Yeah, just briefly, I don't think this is sustainable in the long term, because the idea that we can transform Russia into North Korea, I think is fanciful, in part because, um, first of all, North Korea is not as isolated as we think it is. It's isolated from the most of the Western world, but it's not isolated from China, which provides it with everything it needs, and they have a good trade relationship, and that is enough to secure its longevity forever. And it's also on a, a isthmus, which makes it less of a, a threat to land borders, Quite contrary to that. Russia uh, fuels and to a lesser degree feeds much of Eurasia and North Africa. Um, it is its partners are as dependent on it as it is on them. It has the longest land borders on Earth, so it has quite a few conflicts that it can create and uh, leave in a semi-frozen state for uh, whenever it wants to flare them up. Then it can generate national attention. Whereas North Korea really has to um, dedicate a lot of its um, a lot of its capital and a, and a lot of its governmental investment into a provocation that was big enough to get the West to respond to it. Uh, and lastly, and this is where I fall out with the international relations theorists, is um, the story of the Russian history is really a, a series of opportunities for the Russian people to slough off the yoke that they've been burdened with. And they always return to an authoritarian system in pursuit of a vision of national greatness that includes territorial expansion. Territorial expansionism is part of the Russian national ethos. It is in their DNA. And the idea that they can be persuaded to abandon this national origin myth with Western goodies has been consistently and continually proven inaccurate. Putin isn't dragging the Russian people into some sort of prison that they desperately want out from. Every indication we have is that a critical mass, if not a majority, of the Russian public wants this. Um, let's. So I want to move on from this to talk about the most provocative essay published this week. I mean, provocative in a sense because it's like the feel-good essay of the year, and it's a weird time to have a feel-good essay. It's Elliot Cohen's piece um, in The Atlantic called Why Can't the West Admit That Ukraine Is Winning? Uh, Elliot says America has become too accustomed to thinking of its side as stymied, ineffective, or incompetent. It's always the case that Western conventional wisdom is behind uh, real facts on the ground. That was true in Iraq in 2007, where conventional opinion did not understand that the tide was turning uh, during the surge. 
And he writes, the evidence that Ukraine is winning this war is abundant if one only looks closely at the available data. He mentions the astonishing Russian death toll, the fact that the Russians can't seem to hold territory. Uh, they can't uh, get the Ukrainians to surrender um, and uh, and uh, have not like pulled the trigger on cyber war or anything like that. Um, uh, but that the coverage is not emphasizing this. It's emphasizing the shattered hospitals and the bombings and the destruction of Mariupol and Kiev and not the astonishing success on the ground of the of the Ukrainian army in in turning uh, turning back the Russian horde. And he says the Ukrainians are doing their part. Now is the time to arm them on the scale and with the urgency needed, as in some cases we are already doing. We must throttle the Russian economy, increasing pressure on a Russian elite that does not by and large buy into Putin's bizarre ideology. We must mobilize official and unofficial agencies to penetrate the information cocoon in which Putin's government is attempting to insulate the Russian people. We should begin making arrangements for war crimes trials, begin naming defendants, and announce a Marshall Plan to rebuild the Ukrainian economy. So um, I would love to believe that this is true. And a lot of people are saying this, like the Institute for the Study of War has said that it now sees a path to you know, an, an outright Ukrainian victory and all of that. But is this some version of, is this a sunshine without, you know, are, are, are we, are, is, it, is it wiser to be skeptical of this and to say, look, we're just, the Ukrainians are valiant and amazing and we're in for an incredibly long slog here. Um, and, you know, prematurely saying Ukraine, Ukraine is winning is, is uh, self-defeating because if they have a bad month next month, let's say, then uh, th there'll be a kind of manic reversal where it's like, oh, we've well, told us they were winning. Now look at it. And, you know, we better, we better push them to make the best deal they can. I think uh, Elliot Cohen is describing the desired end state for the United States and our allies. We want Ukraine to win. And there are indications that the Russian offensive has not gone according to plan, uh, to say the least. And so the most valuable part to me of Elliot's essay was that list of suggestions you read at the end. And so if, if the idea that Ukraine is on its way to victory leads us to a sense of complacency and passivity, that, would, that is something we ought to avoid at, at all costs. But if we, if we have this hope and the um, evidence that a Russian defeat is achievable, then we should do everything uh, that Elliot Cohen suggests in order to maximize the chances of Ukrainian victory, because that would be the desired outcome. My fear of this NATO uh, summit that is going to be held later in the week is that the Western powers are going to try to uh, strong arm Zelensky into a settlement with Russia that leads to Russian boots in the, in the occupied territories of Eastern Ukraine and in Crimea. Crimea. And that, you know, that, that I think is a, a, a something that we must avoid. I mean, the, the, the chance to defeat the Russian invasion um, should be seized upon, in my view. I just don't think we have any say over that. I think it's it's a it's a display of hubris to suggest that the West has any capacity to to make this government in Kiev accept uh, dismemberment and surrender. I don't even think Zelensky 
could do that if he wanted to, if he was inclined towards dismemberment and surrender. He's already said that any settlement, negotiated settlement to this war must be put to the Ukrainian people via referendum because he can't just unilaterally get this country out of this war. It is out of his hands. This popular insurgency isn't something that's a top-down controlled apparatus here. This is a genuine organic phenomenon that he's presiding over, but he by no means lead. It would continue without him. And uh, every poll indicates that the Ukrainian people would not accept a surrender because they, insofar as polling is possible in a war zone, everybody on every side of this conflict thinks they're, thinks they're going to win. Russians think they're going to win and the Ukrainians think they're going to win, which means everybody's going to keep on fighting for a very long time until we achieve some sort of a equilibrium in the region. Well, defined by force, but that's defined by negotiated Do settlements, the Russians... certainly not in Belgium. Well, but okay. the Belgium, I mean, it's important for our leaders to understand what you just said, right? I mean, you, what you said might be true, but if you have Biden and the Western powers start pressuring Zelensky and then leading eventually to a cutoff of aid, that would hurt the Ukrainians. I mean, we could I lose. Don't know, we need to help the Ukrainians. We could lose. Yeah, Zelensky. The Ukrainians, the Ukrainians are doing well because we right. helped them since 2014. Right. And, and uh, there are two things, one of which is we don't know if the Russians think they're going to win. We actually I mean, it depends on who you mean by the Russians. If we're talking about what's going on in Putin's brain, we don't know. Kremlin we don't generally. know what. Okay, but does the Kremlin generally think that he's they're arrested win? the ones who don't? I mean, he's no, no, eliminating all the people they, who think they they don't, a, they're they, not going to win. They have a casualty toll that is World War II level in scope in three weeks, right? They have they have ca deaths and casualties somewhere numbering around thirty thousand in three weeks. Uh, that is not anticipated. That was not anticipated. They're seeing all kinds of, you know, issues with their readiness and their supply chains and all of that based on what little information that we have. And I think part of the, the seduction of, Eli of Elliot's argument is the idea that um, we are, we, Ukrainians are punching holes in Russia's sense of itself and are catastrophe, are making, are turning this Russian move into a catastrophe and a spiritual catastrophe and a leadership catastrophe inside the Soviet Union. He's not the only one who was arguing this, like Ed Lutwak, who was, of course, one of the wrote uh, a lot of uh, uh, did a lot of the Cold War writing for commentary in the 70s and 80s. And is, you know, one of the uh, foremost scholars on military matters uh, in the second half of the 20th century, says the Ukrainians have won already. I mean, this is not a. He's it's actually been a, saying it from the start. Right. Uh, I mean, this is the start not, of the invasion. Right. Yeah. And Elliot Cohn is a very serious military historian and, you know, and has been a war planner of a kind. And so this is not a demented opinion. Um, I, I just, you know, uh, there are a lot of opinions that aren't demented, including it's very dangerous to put Putin in this box. If he's in a box, maybe then he will use chemical weapons or at the worst that he will use a tactical nuclear weapon. But or he will start playing games with hypersonic weapons. So, you know, th that's not demented either. So that's I'm just bringing this up to say this, we're in a very weird situation in which we don't know what to think or where to think. All we I, all we do know is that uh, Joe Biden is an idiot and whatever he thinks is probably wrong, like whatever he wants to do. And I think that's Matt's point. Joe Biden's instincts are terrible and his instincts will probably be terrible this week in Brussels. Part, part, part of the problem with with, you know, projecting a, a Ukrainian win here is that whether or not the Russians think they're, they, they can win or are going to win, um, I am certain that Vladimir Putin won't accept losing. 
Um, if he doesn't concede to the idea that Ukraine won, uh, what's to stop him from sending missiles uh, into Ukrainian cities sort of indefinitely? That, what, what kind of victory is that for Ukraine? It's, it's this sort of, it's, a, it's an end game problem. Um, right. I, don't, I don't see how this wraps up in something right. that looks like a Ukrainian victory. Can I also just out of totally out of left field answer the question that was posed in that article? Why can't we admit that they're winning um, from a domestic standpoint? And I think it's the same reason that we can't that, that when polled uh, a kind of disturbing proportion of Americans said they wouldn't actually stay and fight to protect their own country were they in the position that the Ukrainians found themselves to be, which was very worrisome because it's very easy to lie to a pollster to make yourself look good. And even given the opportunity, they still said, yeah, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't pick up a gun and fight for this country. I'd flee that that you have to leave the, the conflict. And I do think there's a real John, you said, you know, this punches holes in the idea that Russia can can uh, the, achieve the kind of military victory that Putin clearly thought they could. But I think that the victory in Ukraine has punched some holes in the uh, sort of moral high ground that a lot of progressive thinking about foreign policy and about the use of force has been on since Obama. And that's that, you know, there's been a kind of demoralization of our own sense of our place in history. And it's why, you know, People like us get very angry about the 1619 Project approach to history because it it demoralizes um, and then tries to remoralize with with ideological uh, race nonsense a bunch of stuff about our past that is useful even today when it comes to justifying the sorts of acts that we are talking about taking and that and that Biden has to represent us. Uh, when he goes to NATO this week. I mean, I think that, again, this is it sounds very abstract, but when no. that survey still bothers me, it's <laughs> not it's it not really abstract at all. I mean, um, one of the most famous incidents in the first half of the 20th century in terms of sort of Western historical thinking, even though it was a very small, very elite thing, was this Oxford Union debate in the late 20s or early 30s in which the debate was between, you know, was do you, should you die for your country or not, and and not one. Um, and this was sort of like elite delivered opinion in you know in Great Britain at Oxford. And what was striking about it, of course, was that um, this was not the this was not you know today's college campus. It's not just a bunch of you know progressives, you know who've been raised in pacifistic circumstances. This was Britain after World War I, which it won, uh, nonetheless looking and saying that, you know, our civilization is not worth defending if it means that I might have to die on a battlefield. And that, that, that notorious debate is given, is used in histories as a, as a hinge moment at which you could see why it took 10 years or why why Chamberlain's efforts to appease uh, Hitler uh, were so popular and why it took the actual outbreak of war in Poland for the British people to see clearly the nature of the struggle that they were in, that they did not wish, they did not want to believe that they were in. And history and this, is very by much the way, repeated. This is what people thought, I'm sorry, this is what people thought about Ukraine. This is what Putin Precisely. thought about Ukraine. Yeah. You, yeah. No, they, well, more the, than that. the liberal democracies can't defend themselves. Everyone yeah. will flee. People have fled Ukraine. There are millions of refugees. Yeah. But many Ukrainians have stayed to fight for their country. We have to remember the young people today have no memory of 9-11. 
they yeah. they were born after it. They have no they have no idea, right? They have no, not felt the sense of threat that it takes to mobilize a democracy because we have not been attacked, and that leads to the sort of complacency I was talking about, the sort of apathy that then then in turn results in ah, they don't really mean it when they say that they're going to invade sovereign territory. They don't really mean it when they're going to say they're going to take this island that we are in legislation. Uh, Congress says we will um, provide assistance to its defense. Um, they don't really mean it that they're going to nuke Israel. Um, but, but once the attack happens, it's fascinating. And just as in England, once the, once the war, once the attack happened, well, after Dunkirk, after, with the Battle of Britain, the democracies mobilize. And, and so it is, it is related to what Elliot Cohen is saying in that piece. It's very hard for us to believe in ourselves. We need leaders who help us believe in ourselves. And our leaders are very bad at doing that. I think Matt's absolutely right. And there's a series of corollaries that we haven't really explored there. I think Vladimir Putin looked around <clears throat> in the West and saw the prevailing sentiment as why die for Danzig. And that actually would lead him, in my view, to a, a at which he's been telegraphing and actually engaging in with a series of cross-border uh, invasions, incursions into Estonia, a threat to the Baltic states. Because then you pose to the West this question, would you risk nuclear warfare for tiny Tallinn? And that breaks the alliance because they don't. That's the ultimate strategy I think the Kremlin wanted to pursue. And then they've saw the Western response to Ukraine. And I don't think he believes that anymore. I don't think the Kremlin believes that the West would not respond to an assault that would trigger Article 5 on the NATO alliance. I think he now thinks they would respond. I didn't think they would respond in this way, and they have to a degree that has shocked me. And we haven't really fully explored what that means, how that changes the calculation in the Kremlin when they assumed they were gonna push and find mush and didn't. And how does that upend their calculations vis-a-vis -vis the West and um, forcing it into a series of uncomfortable compromises with Russia's territorial ambitions? Um, does that make them, accept reality, the fact that their strategic objectives are out of reach and they have to recalibrate? Or does that mean they simply have to apply more pressure and more force in other places? According to Joe Biden, the intelligence that he's looking at apparently suggests they're going to push harder. If we're to believe his very ominous blunt warning from last night, um, where he's you know talking, I don't, I don't forget who he was talking to, but he said very plainly that Russia's cyber cap cyber capabilities are consequential and it's coming. Um, right. Well, you can was, really, you can really get, overshoot he, the mark with that one if you want to go after America's, for example, power grid. Right. That's the sort of thing was, that can cre create a, a, these conditions where we all get into a conflict nobody wants and we all feel obliged to respond to a series of provocations just because we can't figure out a way out of it. Now there, I said Joe Biden was an idiot, but what he did yesterday was not idiotic at all. What he was doing was providing information to the very, very decentralized United States um, and to companies that rely on cyber uh, to prepare themselves and to and to take this threat seriously and to do what they could to mitigate any possible damage from a cyber attack. It was, it's an early warning and it's actually necessary because of course we don't have a centralized, we have the most decentralized system in, in that respect. And uh, you know, if, um, if Amazon, if Amazon web services goes down, 
three quarters of the web goes down. So, you know, Amazon, if he's going get to it, you know, this is what you've been preparing for. It's coming. That's a good thing, not a bad thing, because it's not something that's within his control, really. Anyway, that's 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 my that's my sense of it. But I I do think that you just don't know what the condition of a civilization is until it's until it's tested. And um, and we've done better. I mean, I honestly, I think we would all agree that we have done better than we would have thought we would do that it would have been more like the poll that so unnerved Christine and more like the Oxford Union. And that would have been the dominating opinion and the the mad onrush to support for Ukraine. And 90% of the American people saying they're following the war closely and and the lionization of Zelensky. And I would say almost no blowback to any request that will be made to fortify the Ukrainians militarily with the exception of the things that the Pentagon says it, it cannot do because that it's too strategically dangerous. But any budgetary request made of Congress, for example, a big, a big is, yeah, go ahead. A big, a big part of, of why we've done more and better than I would ever have thought comes back to, you know, when Matt said that uh, we need leaders that make us believe in ourselves and American leaders are very bad at that. And that's true. Shockingly, Zelensky, to some degree, has made us believe in ourselves. Um, yes, as Americans, but as as free people living in a democracy, um, and and sort of framing our obligations in that way, and uh, stretching the threat out to us as well. Look, what we didn't know was whether the right was, you know, sort of like had become Putin's cat's paw. So it turns out it hasn't. That that's one really significant development that that the that the years of sort of softening of this idea and that American nationalism met isolationism and kind of a support for these post-liberal regimes of which of which you know Russia is kind of like the foundational regime and the you know and the most significant regime um, turns out to be hollow like it's just not real and they and and Republicans and conservatives don't actually support it outside of the grifter class and lunatics and and really uh, shocking and people who as i say in my piece this month are basically surfacing 1960s 1970s style anti-americanism um and so uh that's a big thing and then on the right we have on the left we have the advantage that there is no conservative president for them to say oh it's just a warmonger you know, this is just warmongering and this is what they always want to do and blah, 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 because because of Trump's weird relation with Ukraine and Russia, um, siding with Ukraine uh, is much easier uh, for them. And because they can be on the side of the angels in this way without having to somehow strengthen the Republican nationalist hand. That's also made it. I mean, if you really want to sort of diagnose what it is that has made this on the right, we are the right is reverting to its nationalist belief in the use of force. Believe in the use of force is a is a is a conservative value. It and it, it stretches across all. Maybe not the use of force, boundaries. but the projection of power. Projection of power, but the right the projection of power, which is one of the things that unifies, for example, uh, a loathing of you know national gun control measures with support 
for defense spending and a and a and a, and a strong U.S. military second to none. There is a domestic element. Uh, there is a there is a domestic element to support for foreign policy, and the two are connected. It's about what you how you view the world and whether or not what you need to do is be in a position to defend yourself with lethal force should the circumstances warrant, as opposed to imagining that lethal force itself is somehow illegitimate and you should not use it and you should it's better it's better not to and you just create more problems uh than you than you have and then it turns out of course that the that the left is more is much isn't isn't as firmly committed to its own kind of progressive pacifism that i would have thought that it was much more committed to but i think it has had this out of not of having a democratic president in office who himself has already expressed his distaste for american supposed adventurism uh in the pullout from afghanistan that helped lead to the fact that putin invaded ukraine in the first place um so I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you, Matt Connetti. Everybody go pre-order his book, The Right. Go read his piece on commentary.org called Believe Them. Uh, and we'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noah. I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.